Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton along with Dr. James Polo. Hello, Dr. Polo. It's so good to see you. Hi, Sheila. In recent days, Black people have been repeatedly reminded of the risks involved when they interact with police, and they've been exposed to videos of Black women and men being murdered or really treated brutally. They've also seen a military response to communities that are protesting these abuses. And for the first time uh, on Twitter, which I follow quite frequently to understand the psychological impacts that these current events are having on people, I saw a hashtag called racial trauma. I want to know if you're familiar with the term racial trauma and what it means. Yeah, I, I am familiar with that term. But, but you know, the first thing I've just got to say is that I watched that video myself. I couldn't believe what I was reading and I had to actually watch it. It is painful. It yeah. is so painful to, to watch. And I had a mixture of emotions. On, on one hand, I felt angry. On one hand, I felt a little guilty. I think the power of that video is that it reminds us that racial trauma and and racial discrimination, in the end, it affects us all. You know, racial trauma from the African-American perspective, I think is something that we're learning a lot about and we need to learn more about it. Let me give you a snippet. So, you know, we talk a lot in the media about PTSD and, and what that means, you know, post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder, that people go through an event or a series of events where they're overwhelmed. Anxiety, fear, depression, they just feel threatened at their core. And you can suffer PTSD because of something you went through. You can also suffer PTSD by watching other people go through something too. Mm. And so racial trauma is similar, but there are some things that make it unique. You know, racial trauma is something that folks deal with when they either personally face those moments of discrimination or they watch fellow African-Americans struggle and deal with the same injustices. And they're exhausted. Black Americans, African-Americans, they are exhausted from this. The repeated injustices, watching them, hearing them, and so forth, it, it really can create a sense of hopelessness, a sense of helplessness. Sometimes it can even push people into feeling worthless. Yeah. And this is just devastating emotionally, not to mention the physical and the mental health aspect, but emotionally, I think racial trauma is really, really hurtful, harmful to all of us. I um, noticed some of the comments about it were not even in the realm of uh, when they'd been openly discriminated against or openly brutalized, but it was also in just acknowledging the lifetime of microaggressions, of not being invited to the office party, of having people comment on the strangeness of your hair, like the unusual things that make up sort of a body of never feeling quite accepted that they were putting in this category of racial trauma. And I want to ask you about that. How harmful is it when someone comes to you and and wants help in untangling this lifetime of the aggressions against them? Does it make it much more difficult in treatment? It, It makes it a lot more difficult. And the first thing that makes it difficult is you really have to understand the complexity of racism. Uh, Most people think about interpersonal racism and think that's the full scope of it. You know, interpersonal is an action between two or more people where it's real obvious, you know, it's bigotry, it's discrimination, it's comments, it's it's all those things that, you know, the average individual can say, yeah, that's racial. 
But what African-Americans suffer from is they suffer from two other elements that are pretty significant. The first is systemic racism. So these are things that are built right into the fabric of everything we do that really kind of encourage and endorse that continued sense of racism. It can be in policies, and sometimes it's institutional in a way that we don't even really recognize it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's racial. Um, you know, I'll give you a, a very simple example. You know, the U.S. military has a long and proud history of defending this nation, and obviously our, our military service members are heroes, okay? Mm-hmm. They do everything in the defense of our nation, and we applaud that. And yet, when you look out into the military today, we have a number of military bases that are named after Confederate generals. But what's that supposed to mean? What does that say? There's a process for how military bases were named at the time that they were named. But sometimes we lose sight of the things that our institutions do that kind Mm. of encourage this continued racism. And so it it opens the door to think about another element, which is very, very subtle, very nuanced. And it's, it's that internalized racism. And what do I mean by that? You know, when you're exposed to racism, you start to think and believe that certain, you know, stereotypes make sense. Hey, gee, you know, they keep showing in the media that every time somebody gets robbed, the person that they're showing a video of is a, is a young black man holding a gun. Mm-hmm. You know, how many people see that and without recognizing it sometimes, or even sometimes recognizing, which is even worse, they start to think, well, all robbers must be young black men. Beliefs or stereotypes that we just think are the norm. Mm. Sometimes African Americans have that internalized sense. Well, this just must be what's true. And so racism is far more complex than just being discriminatory. And we really need to attack it from all of these angles. We've really got to make some changes to our own culture. I loved um, a quote that I saw today that really resonated with me when um, a young black activist said, we'll only end racism when white people start looking at it more as a societal problem that they need to help solve rather than that they need to help empathize with. Because the conversations I have with many other white people is, oh, I feel so bad, what do I do? Instead of, wait a minute, I'm the board director of this huge thing, I think I can help fix this. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So I read that quote too, and I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. At the end of the day, you can say whatever you want to get people to believe whatever you want them to believe. Values come from what you believe, but you have to actually live them. Now, the reason why that quote is so powerful is that, you know, sympathy is when you feel sorry for somebody else. Yeah. Empathy is when you try to understand how somebody feels. But none of that actually makes a change. That's right. So, You know, when it comes to racial discrimination, when it comes to social injustice, we've we've got to start taking some actions. You know, unfortunately right now, because so many people are in a state of confusion, a state of anger, some of the actions they're doing really aren't the right ones, okay? Mm -hmm. But we need to start taking some active movement towards doing something that actually shows we understand. And it needs to come from everybody, and it especially needs to come from white people to demonstrate that they're actually willing to change. They're not just going to talk about it. They're just not going to feel sorry for folks. They're not just going to say, I know how you feel or I'd like to feel how you feel, but I'm actually willing to do something to change. Mm. 
I was so struck when the chief of police, a female, decided to step aside in Portland so that she could let an African-American officer fill that role. And she did it willingly. She actually came up with the idea that these are the kind of, of changes that need to take place. But right now, Dr. Polo, in this era of COVID, where there is so few resources, people are feeling like we are not going to have a huge economy and room for a lot of people to have prosperity. I think there's a mindset of uh, that there's not enough to go around already. Yeah. And so how do we encourage, especially white leaders, to share, elevate, amplify Black voices that have not had this for a long, long time, these opportunities. So there's a couple things in there that I think are really kind of important. We have talked for years uh, about making sure that things are equitable for everybody, that everybody has the same chance, that we're cognizant of giving folks that chance to, to excel. Now, when it comes to African-Americans, I think we have to remember they sometimes have not been afforded some of the same opportunities precisely because of our institutional and our internalized racial feelings. So we need to take some active steps to promote the idea that, hey, African-Americans are just as capable, just as competent as anybody else. And we need to actually put them in positions so that they can actually demonstrate they can succeed. That's only part of the issue because what you talked about was the fact that we're entering into a period where there may be some lack of resources, there are obviously going to be budget cuts, et cetera, so on and so forth. We always have a challenge with resources. We have to use the resources we have in a way that is still equitable. I don't think you can argue that because we're having financial difficulties, this is something that can wait till later. And I don't think that you can argue because we're having financial difficulties, other people can fix this later. We need to fix it now because the value of equality is far more important than the value of economic wealth. Economic wealth may all by itself be part of the problem. Wow. I just saw that headline going across you as you spoke because it was so powerful. (laughs) Thank you. You worked in the military and I want you to explain um, your role there, what your interactions were like and why many of the African-American soldiers actually came to you as an ally. Yeah, you know, I spent many years in the military. I was a physician in the military and I'm a psychiatrist. So, you know, I spent the early years of my career just treating and seeing people. And I myself, uh, I'm an immigrant and I myself, you know, have my own quote, quote, uh, minority perspective. I'm 100% Latino. My name got legally changed to make sure that uh, I could fit in because in the 1960s and 70s, it was all about fitting in. And because I happened to be relatively fair-skinned, I could pass as white. In fact, I I never put Hispanic on anything that might display I was something other than white. Mind you, my sense of discrimination is nothing compared to what an African-American feels. But that experience helped me as a young, young psychiatrist recognize that Racism and how people feel is a key part of their emotional health. Now, as I advanced into my military career, I I continued to do some practice, but I entered some roles where I was actually leading in charge from an administrative perspective. In fact, I ultimately ended up being a, a, a senior policy advisor. And to me, this idea that equality trumps everything, it's core to what I believe because I've seen stigma against mental health. I've seen stigma against women. I've seen discrimination against all kinds of groups. But truly, the racial injustice against African-Americans is 
so deeply rooted, it is so ingrained and unique that it really is something that I, I feel strongly that we need to do something about. And I think that over time, people could see, you know, one of my most gratifying moments ever. I'll never forget this. I was actually asked to be the keynote speaker at a, you know, celebration for, uh, for Black History Month. And I was so excited. I said, absolutely. I love speaking. I, I will prepare. It was only after I accepted it, I realized, wait a second, I, I'm not African-American. And I don't really know as much as I think I know. I had to do a lot of research. Mm. And so I think that was part of my own journey. And I'm realizing now that so many folks think they understand this and it's all good intent. But I think it's time that we really need to educate folks in a deeper way to really recognize how widespread, how deep this divide goes. And we're in a time in our country right now, there's a lot of division over so many things. This is not one of the ones we should have. Yeah. I want you to talk to white allies right now. And, and I, I was, you know, reluctant to even have this conversation because I'm not African-American and I don't right. have this experience space, but I do. I'm deeply interested in mental health and access to mental health care for everyone. And what I understand is that white allies have a role to play in making sure that now the structural changes occur, that we just don't go on Instagram and retweet and do the things that from the comfort of our home. And I want you to, to take a few of the, of the most commonly um, heard objections that I hear and, and talk to me about those. One is, I don't know what white privilege is. I had food insecurity. I grew up poor. Nobody ever gave me anything. How can I assume or even pretend that I am privileged? The first thing that I have to say is the first thing that's wrong with that approach of thinking, this is not a competition. This is not, hey, you were discriminated against, but so was I. So therefore, it's no big deal. If you were discriminated against and you felt something, it's a big deal to you. And there may be a time and a place when that should be addressed. But the first thing about racism that needs to be put on the table is that it's not a competition to see who had it worst, who had it the most, or who, or who had it often. As a white individual myself, okay, I do try to understand what others might feel like. But I know that I'll never really have that lived experience. Mm -hmm. You know, as a white ally, I have to remind myself that there may be times when, you know, my African-American friends will say, Jim, you don't get it. And I have to be honest and say, y you're right, I don't. Yeah. Help me get it. Mm. Not only help me get it, what is it that I can do that has meaning to it to show you I'm trying to make a difference, I'm trying to help? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, one of the things that's going on right now with all of the upheaval over the death of George Floyd is that there are some African-Americans that actually they're feeling like they need to even get away from their white allies. Mm. You know, just that vision, it, explaining to a white individual over and over what it feels like is all by itself exhausting, even if they're being supportive of to you. Of course, yeah. And when you see these visual pictures over and over and over where it's oppression of a black individual by a white individual, it's easy to see why people would begin to feel like, well, I mean, that must be the way all white people are. And rather than getting upset about that, we have to understand where that comes from so that we can make a difference. So I do think white allies are very important mm. in, in terms of being part of this discussion. But it goes back to what I said earlier. It's got to be more than a discussion. It's got to be action. It's got to be things that we're willing to do and change. 
I want to um, try to understand in the field of psychiatry and psychology, I know that it's very difficult for a white professional, even with insurance and good access to care, to get in to see a good psychiatrist. What is the prevalence of African-American psychiatrists and psychologists? What is the mindset of accessing mental health care? Okay. I can't necessarily give you a mindset that applies to everybody. I, I will tell you that what you will hear is, hey, it is harder for people of color to get into treatment. Uh, it is especially hard to get into treatment if you live in a rural community or if you live in an area that, that's populated heavily because we're already short on those resources. In addition to that, there are a lot of providers that will say, well, that's not my problem. Hey, look, I'm already working full time. I'm seeing as many people as I can. That's not my problem. And the reality is that's the wrong perspective. If you're trying to help people for the greater good of the community, you have to think about how you can be available to everybody. And I mm -hmm. realize some people have insurance and some people don't, and some people can pay more and some people can pay less, et cetera, yeah. so on and so forth. But if we disenfranchise any part of the population away from mental health, essentially, we're, we're hurting all of ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, rather than talking about access and saying it's a problem, I think what we need to do is we need to say to ourselves, okay, so how do we actually make some changes? What do we do that makes access for African-Americans better? What do we do that makes access and affordability for African-Americans better? Yeah. And what do we do that get folks engaged in that discussion where they're actually doing something about it? Mm. I've heard so many people say um, a, a kind of structure that has worked for um, white Americans might not necessarily work for um, black Americans because of the history of black Americans being tested on and some of the deep-rooted fear and mistrust of the medical profession. How do you, if you were given the crown <laughs> to change that, what changes would you make? Ah, that's a tough, tough question. You know, I, I feel blessed. And, and the reason why I feel blessed is I spent many of my early years in the military. And the US military does a phenomenal job of really embracing all cultures and does a phenomenal job of, of really proposing the idea that we need to work together as a team mm. if we're gonna succeed as a team. I'll be honest. Even in the military, racism exists. Even in the military, there are probably some institutional practices that absolutely need to change. Now, your question is, what would I do? Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, I sometimes wonder um, if we need to, the first thing that we need to do is we need to engage African-Americans into the discussion to help guide the plan. We, we've talked about the idea that access is difficult, affordability is difficult, and you know you can get a bunch of smart people in the room and they'll, they'll talk about that too, they're blue in the face. But last I checked, when I look, a lot of these smart people in the room, they, they don't represent the people they're trying to help. Mm. And so you know, if you're really going to make a difference to change something, you have to have folks that really understand it. So I think the first step is getting African-Americans into the discussion to help guide, well, what are the things that we can do? And, and here's why I say that. Whatever solutions we come up with are, are going to be innovative and new because mm. whatever we've doing in the past hasn't been working. So we need as many bright minds in, in the room. And sometimes the best solutions come from the people that experience the actual problem. Engage them to help look for the solutions. And, and it's more than just talk. We've got to empower them, decision-making. 
mm. uh, access to resources and funding. Yeah. We have to be willing to try some things. Some things may not turn out well, and that's okay. That just gives us more information on what we can try do, to do differently. What we've been doing in the past is just not working. I just watched an amazing TED Talk from a young African-American leader, um, psychologist, who said they train grandmothers in inner cities to have the conversation about mental health because they're the most trusted figure in the matriarchy. And I love that, the idea of bringing the discussions right into the home rather than the person having to go out and face the stigma of seeking help for mental health. You know, yeah. we're going to have to do those kind of really interesting things because I agree with you that the number of times I'm hearing young African-Americans in particular talk about trauma, we're going to have a generation of young African-Americans who that will impact every decision they make going forward. And so we do have to fix it. We don't have to just empathize. I really love that, Dr. Polo. Do you have any other closing thoughts? You know, I'll say two things that strike me. I do think that things have reached a point where we just can't keep ignoring the problem. Mm. And because of this pandemic that we've been struggling with, people have already been on edge. People have already felt like somehow something might happen. People are feeling fear, a feeling that everybody has been having because, you know, mm. the virus is non-discriminatory. It affects anybody. Along comes this event and you just see this eruption. I think the blessing is that what I'm seeing is I'm seeing more people than ever that are not African-American that are part of being upset and angry. And I think that might be an inflection point because at the end of the day, what we've learned about this COVID pandemic is that if we want to survive as a community, we have to collaborate and cooperate as a community. Just think about that. When, when we talk about this pandemic, it's always about anybody can get infected. How do we protect people? How do we do that? And some of our institutional racial challenges have even made the pandemic uh, challenging because I, I know that there are African-Americans that have less access. Yeah. And I know that there are African-Americans that have a disproportionate number of people getting infected. That ought to be a clue to us that our mm -hmm. systems are a little bit broken when it comes to the racial point. But what we've learned about this pandemic is we aren't going to survive if we don't work together as a community. Well, guess what? The same applies in racial injustice. We are not going to survive as a vibrant community that democracy stands for. That's what we are here. If we don't really begin to bring things together, and I'm just hopeful that the current frustration, the current anger that I'm seeing erupted leads to real active action. Wow. I love these discussions with you so much. It feels like I've just got my, my intellectual stimulation for the entire week. Dr. Polo, thank you so much. It was really wonderful. And thank you for taking on this topic. I really appreciate your time today. Sheila, thank you. Have a great week. Bye -bye.